Book One, Chapter Eight of the Heavenly Twins. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devora Allen. The Heavenly Twins by Sarah G. Book One, Chapter Eight. The next morning, all the guests left Freelingay, and the family there settled into their accustomed grooves. Evadne and her father walked and rode, conversing together as usual, he enjoying the roll and rumble and fine flavor of his own phrase-making amazingly, and she also impressed by the roll and rumble. But when it was all over, and he had marched off in triumph, she would collect the mutilated remains of the argument and examine them at her leisure, and in nine cases out of ten it proved to be quartz that he had crushed and contemned, overlooking the gold it contained but releasing it for her to find and add exultingly to her own collection. In this way, therefore, she continued to obtain her wealth of ore from him, and both were satisfied. He, because he was sure that, thanks to him, she was a thoroughly sensible girl with no nonsense of new-fangled notions about her, and she, because, being his daughter, she had not altogether escaped the form of mental myopia from which he suffered, and was in the habit of seeing only what she hoped and wished to see in those she loved. Man, the unjust and iniquitous, was to her always the outside, vague, theoretical man of the world, never the dear, undoubted papa at home. Evadne was the eldest of six girls, and their mother had a comfortable, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, feeling about them all. But she prided herself most upon Evadne as answering in every particular to the conventional idea of what a young lady should be. "'The dear child,' she wrote to Lady Adeline, is all and more than we dared to hope to have her become. I can assure you, she has never caused me a moment's anxiety in her life, except, of course, such anxiety for her health and happiness as every mother must feel. I have had her educated with the utmost care, and her father has, I may say, devoted himself to the task of influencing her in the right direction in matters of opinion, and has ably seconded all my endeavors in other respects. She speaks French and German well, and knows a little Italian, in fact i may say that she has a special aptitude for languages she does not draw but is a fair musician and is still having lessons being most anxious to improve herself and she sings very sweetly but best of all as i am sure you will agree with me i notice in her a deeply religious disposition she is really devout and beautifully reverential in her manner both in church and to us her parents and indeed to all who are older and wiser than herself she is very clever too they tell me but, of course, I am no judge of that. I do know, however, that she is perfectly innocent, and I am indeed thankful to think that at eighteen she knows nothing of the world and its wickedness, and is therefore eminently qualified to make somebody an excellent wife, and all I am afraid of is that the destined somebody will come for her all too soon, for I cannot bear to think of parting with her. She is not quite like other girls in some things, I am afraid, mere trifles, however, as, for instance, about her presentation." I know I was in quite a flutter of excitement for days before I was presented, and was quite bewildered with agitation at the time. But Evadne displayed no emotion whatever. I never knew anyone so equable as she is. In fact, nothing seems to ruffle her wonderful calm. It is almost provoking sometimes. On the way home she would not have made a remark, I think, if I had not spoken to her. "'Don't you think it was a very pretty sight?' I said at last. "'Yes,' she answered doubtfully, and then she added with genuine feeling— Mais il y a des longueurs. Oh, mother, the hours we have spent hanging about drafty corridors, half-dressed and shivering with cold, 
and the crowding and crushing and unlovely faces, all looking so miserable, and showing the discomfort and fatigue they were enduring so plainly. I call it positive suffering, and I never want to see another drawing-room. My soul desires nothing now but decent clothing and hot tea. And that is all she has ever said about the drawing-room in my hearing. But wasn't it a very curious view for a girl to take? Of course the arrangements are detestable, and one does suffer a great deal from cold and fatigue and for want of refreshments. But still, I never thought of those things when I was a girl. Did you? I never thought of anything, in fact, but whether I was looking my best or not. Don't let me make you imagine, however, that Evadne was whining and querulous. She never is, you know, and I should call her tone sorrowful, if it were not too absurd for a girl to be saddened by the sight of other people in distress. Well, not quite in distress, that is an exaggeration, but, at all events, not quite comfortably situated, on what was really one of the greatest occasions of her own life. I am half inclined to fear that she may not be quite so strong as we have always thought her, and that she was depressed by the long fasting and fatigue, which would account for a momentary morbidness. But excuse my garrulity. I always have so much to say to you. I will spare you any more for the present, however. Only do tell me all about yourself and your own lovely children. And how is Mr. Hamilton Wells? Remember that you are to come to us, twins and all, on your way home as usual this year. We are anxiously expecting you, and I hope your next letter will fix the day. Ever, dear Adeline, your loving friend, Elizabeth Frayling. P.S. We return to Frelinghuysen tomorrow, so please write to me there. The following is Lady Adeline's reply to Mrs. Frayling's letter. Hamilton House, Morning Quest, 30th July. My dear Elizabeth, I am afraid you will have been wondering what has become of us, but I know you will acquit me of all blame for the long delay in answering your letter when I tell you that I have only just received it. We had left Paris before it arrived for, what is always to me, a tiresome tour about the continent, and it has been following us from pillar to post, finally reaching me here at home, where we have been settled a fortnight. I had not forgotten your kind invitation, but I am afraid I must give up all idea of going to you this year. We hurried back because Mr. Hamilton Wells became homesick suddenly while we were abroad, and I don't think it will be possible to get him to move again for some time. But won't you come to us? Do, dear, and bring your just-come-out and I am sure most charming Evadne for our autumn gaieties. If Mr. Frayling would come too, we should be delighted, but I know he has a poor opinion of our coverts, and I despair of being able to tempt him from his own shooting, and therefore I ask you first and foremost, in the hope that you will be able to come whether he does or not. I have been thinking much of all you have told me about Evadne. She had already struck me as being a most interesting child and full of promise, and I do hope that now she is out of the schoolroom I shall see more of her. I know you will trust her to me, although I do think that in parts of her education you have been acting by the half-light of a past time, and following a method now out of date. I cannot agree, for instance, that it is either right or wise to keep a girl in ignorance of the laws of her own being, and of the state of the community in which she will have to pass her existence." While she is at an age to be influenced in the right way, she should be fully instructed by those she loves, and not left to obtain her knowledge of the world haphazard from anyone with whom accident may bring her acquainted. People, perhaps, whose point of view may not only differ materially from her parents, but be extremely offensive to them. The first impression in these matters, you know, is all important, and my experience is that what you call beautiful innocence, and what I consider dangerous ignorance, is not a safe state in which to begin the battle of life. In the matter of marriage especially, an ignorant girl may be fatally deceived, and indeed I know cases in which the man who was liked well enough as a companion was found to be objectionable in an unendurable degree as soon as he became a husband. 
you will think I am tainted with new notions, and I do hope I am, in so far as these notions are juster and better than the old ones. For surely the elder ages did not discover all that is wisdom, and certainly there is still room for nobler modes of life and sweeter manners, purer laws. If this were not allowed, moral progress must come to a standstill. So I say, instruct, instruct. The knowledge must come sooner or later. Let it come wholesomely. A girl must find out for herself if she is not taught, and she may, in these plain-spoken times, obtain a wholly erroneous theory of life and morality from a newspaper report which she reads without intention in an idle moment while enjoying her afternoon tea. We are in a state of transition, we women, and the air is so full of ideas that it would be strange if an active mind did not catch some of them, and I find myself that stray theories swallowed whole without due consideration are of uncertain application, difficult in the working, if not impracticable, and apt to disagree. Theories should be absorbed in detail, as dinner, if they are to become an addition to our strength, and not an indigestible item of inconvenience, seriously affecting our mental temper. But you ask me about my twins. In health they continue splendid. In spirits they are tremendous. But their tricks are simply terrible. We never know what mischief they will devise next, and Angelica is much the worst of the two. If we had taken them to Freilingay it would have been in fear and trembling. But we should have been obliged to take them had we gone ourselves, for they somehow found out that you had asked them, and they insisted upon going, and threatened to burn down Hamilton House in our absence if we did not take them, a feat which we doubt not they would have accomplished had they had a mind to. Indeed, I cannot tell you what these children are. Imagine their device to extort concessions from their father. You know how nervous he is. Well, if he will not do all that they require of him, they blow him up literally and actually. They put little trains of gunpowder about in unexpected places with lucifer matches that go off when they are trodden upon, and you can imagine the consequence. I told him what it would be when he would spoil them so, but it was no use, and now they rule him instead of him them, so that he has to enter into solemn compacts with them about not infringing what they call their rights. And only fancy, he is so fond to foolishness as to be less annoyed by their naughtiness than pleased, because when they promise not to do anything again, honest engine as they phrase it, they keep to their word. Dr. Galbraith calls them in derision the heavenly twins. But have I told you about Dr. Galbraith? He is the new master of Fountain Towers, and a charming as well as a remarkable man, quite young, being in fact only nine and twenty, but already distinguished as a medical man. He became a professional man of necessity, having no expectation at that time of ever inheriting property. But now that he is comparatively speaking a rich man, he continues to practice for the love of science, and also from philanthropic motives. He is a fine-looking young man physically, with a strong face of most attractive plainness, only redeemed from positive ugliness, in fact, by good grey eyes, white teeth, and an expression which makes you trust him at once. After the first five minutes' conversation with him, I have heard people say that they not only could, but would positively have enjoyed telling him all the things that ever they did, so great is the confidence he inspires. He, and Sir Daniel Galbraith's adopted son, Sir Daniel is Dr. Galbraith's uncle, were my brother Don's great friends at Oxford, where the three of them were known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because they passed unscathed through the burning, fiery furnace of temptation to which young men of position at the universities are exposed. Dr. Galbraith is somewhat abrupt in manner and quick of temper, but most good-naturedly long-suffering with my terrible children nevertheless. Of course they impose upon his good nature, and they are always being punished, but that they do not mind. In fact, I heard Angelica say once, it is all in the day's work, 
when she had a long imposition to do for something outrageous. And Diavolo called to her over the stairs only yesterday, "'Wait for me a minute in the hall till I've been thrashed for letting the horses and dogs loose, and then we'll go and snare pheasants in the far plantation.' They explained to me once that being found out and punished added the same zest to their pleasures that cayenne pepper does to their diet. A little too much of it stings, but just the right quantity relieves the insipidity and adds to the interest. And then there is the element of uncertainty, which has a charm of its own. They never know whether they will catch it hot or not. When they are found out, they always confess everything with a frankness which is quite provoking, because they so evidently enjoy the recital of their own misdeeds— and they defend themselves by quoting various anecdotes of the naughty doings of children which have been written for our amusement. And it is in vain that I explain to them that parents who are hurt and made anxious by their children's disobedience cannot see anything to laugh at in their pranks, at least not for a very long time afterward. They pondered this for some time, and then arrived at the conclusion that when they were grown up and no longer a nuisance to me, I should be a very jolly old lady, because I should have such a lot of funny stories all my own to tell people." "'But I shall weary you with this inexhaustible subject. "'You must forgive me if I do, "'for I am terribly anxious about my young Turks. "'If they are equal to such enormities in the green leaf, "'I am always asking myself, "'what will they do in the dry? "'I own that my sense of humour is tickled sometimes, "'but never enough to make me forget the sense of danger, "'present and to come, which all this keeps forever alive. "'Come and comfort me, "'and tell me how you have made your own children so charming.' Ever lovingly yours, Adeline Hamilton Wells. Mrs. Frayling wrote a full account of Evadne's presentation at court to her sister, Mrs. Orton Begg, who was wandering about Norway by herself at the time, and concluded her description of the dear child's gown, very charming appearance, and dignified self-possession with some remarks about her character to the same effect as those which she had addressed to Lady Adeline. It was natural, perhaps, that the last conversation Mrs. Ortenbeg had had with Evadne at Freilingay, which was in fact the first articulate outcome of Evadne's self-training, coming as it did at the end of a day of pleasurable interest and excitement, should have made no immediate impression upon her tired faculties. But she recollected it now, and smiled as she read her sister's letter. "'If that is all you know of your daughter, my dear Elizabeth,' was her mental comment, "'I fancy there will be surprises at Freilingay.' but in reply she merely observed that she was glad Evadne was so satisfactory. She was too wise a woman to waste words on her sister Elizabeth, who, in consequence of having had them in abundance to squander all her life long, had lost all sense of their value, and would have failed to appreciate the force which they collect in the careful keeping of such silent folk as Mrs. Orton Begg. Mrs. Frayling was not able to accept Lady Adeline's invitation that year. End of Book One, Chapter Eight